Hello, Malcolm here, and welcome to the latest class in the Thames Valley Churches of Christ teaching series on the Gospel of Mark. And today we are in Mark chapter 9. There is a ton of phenomenal material here, so let's just dive straight in. We begin with the Transfiguration at the beginning of Mark chapter 9. After six days, Jesus takes Peter, James and John with him and led them up to a high mountain. They're all alone and he is transfigured. His clothes become dazzling white and Elijah and Moses turn up to have a chat. Peter says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let's let's put up three shelters. Uh, You, Moses and Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. He was so frightened. A cloud appears, covered them. A voice comes from the cloud. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, they're all alone with Jesus. They come down the mountain. Jesus tells them not to see any, say anything until they've seen uh, the Son of Man rise from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, wondering what that exactly meant, rising from the dead. And then they ask him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And he says Elijah does come first, restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. It's a bit of teaching going on, uh, Q&A between Jesus and uh, his disciples. So the transfiguration. So here we get a glimpse, and his disciples get a glimpse of the glory to come. That's mentioned in Mark 8. He talks about that glory coming in uh, verse 38 the glory of the holy angels. Here is uh, a taster of that vision. And they're up there there for six days, perhaps an allusion to Exodus chapter 24, verse 15, where Moses is summoned to the mountaintop for a revelation of God. This revelation is of a different order. It surpasses that of Moses. And Mark is making the point that Jesus is greater than Moses. You might like to have a look in Hebrews chapter 3 for further expansion on that idea. Jesus is receiving here what is already his, as opposed to Moses, who had a temporary and fading glory, didn't he? 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7 and verse 13. And his clothes become dazzling white. And I think that's an allusion to Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. You might like to look that up. Uh, Description there of the vision of God. So we're seeing Jesus in the way that God is depicted in the Old Testament. Larry Hurtado says in his commentary on this passage, The transfiguration of Jesus shows him in a form like God, meaning that he is not just the Messiah, an especially godly human chosen to rule in God's name. He is himself clothed in divine glory. Clothed in divine glory. Elijah and Moses are there. Moses, the great lawgiver, and the one who in many Jewish people's minds was uh, was the promised, uh, had promised another prophet, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, which was to be that person to be expected in the final period before the appearance of the kingdom of God. And early Christians saw this connection with Jesus. If you have a look in Acts chapter 3, 22 to 26, and Acts chapter 7, verses 35 to 37. And what about Elijah? Well, Elijah was known to be expected as the herald to the kingdom and to prepare the people for it. So Elijah's appearance here, I think, is validating Jesus as Messiah and the one to bring in the kingdom. And the voice, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. That listen to him phrase is a direct allusion to the prophecy of Deuteronomy 18 verse 15. And the one whom I love sets Jesus apart from all others who have been acclaimed as 
a son of God. In, in Old Testament Israel, the king of Israel sometimes was called uh, the son of God. Uh, but he is superior to all other sons of God. And the cloud here recalls the cloud that indicated the presence of God in Exodus 16, verse 10, for example. And this cloud, the Shekinah, the presence of God that filled the tabernacle and later Solomon's temple, temple, indicating God was there and with his people, is being alluded to here. What Peter, of course, fails to realize is that God is with him in the flesh. In many ways, this is not the Mount of Transfiguration, but the Mount of Revelation. God revealing something that was already true, already there. Jesus already had that glory, but the world hadn't seen it until now. Or at least Peter gets to see it, at least. Elijah has come, Jesus says. Jesus clearly here referring to John the Baptist as an Elijah figure. In what way did he restore all things? Perhaps it was as one who preached a baptism of repentance. He wasn't based in the temple, of course, but he was looking to purify the people, indicating that the temple was not going to be the permanent place of all purification. Now let's go on to look at the boy possessed by an impure spirit. Verse 14. They come down the mountain to the other disciples. They find a crowd, teachers of the law, arguing. Big argument going on. They see Jesus overwhelmed with wonder, run to meet him. He asks them, what are you arguing about? A man says, I brought my son. He's got a demon. I asked your disciples to help. They can't help. They couldn't do it. You unbelieving generation, Jesus says, how long shall I stay with you? Bring the boy to me. They do that. It has a convulsion. He asks the father, how long has he been like this from childhood? If you can do anything. Take pity and help us if you can, says Jesus. Everything is possible for the one who believes. And immediately the boy's father says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. Crowds running. Jesus commands the spirit to leave, which it does. And the disciples ask him later indoors, why couldn't we drive it out? He says this kind can come out only by prayer. Let's see what we can take from this amazing, amazing passage here. So the first thing I would like to point out is that sometimes e arguing is easier than taking action. The boy and the father have disappeared from the scene at the beginning of this passage. They are meant to be the focus. The boy is in trouble. The father is in great emotional pain. They are invisible. What we do see is an argument. And sometimes it's easier to argue than take action, isn't it? We get caught up sometime on the ways we think things should be done, the particular practices, the particular ways in which we believe things, the disputable matters, and we can spend too long arguing about those details when the needs of people are being left neglected and lost and people are in pain. And there's a place to get down to nitty gritty. There's a place to talk about deep things in quite a lot of detail. I'm not denying that. But then there are other times when there's an immediate and urgent need in front of us and somebody can go and meet that need and, and woe betide us if we don't. So when Jesus comes down, he asks about the argument. And I rather like that. He doesn't make an accusation straight away, but he does ask. And the man says they could not do it. They couldn't do it, which is indicating that he thinks they weren't. Well, they weren't strong enough is literally actually what it says. Now, later on, they would be strong enough. In Acts chapter 3, we see them doing something very similar to this, where they actually do heal. So they will be able to do it. And I think that's something for us to bear in mind, that 
at different stages of the Christian life, we're capable of different levels of faithful action. Don't be impatient with yourself if you're not yet as far on as somebody else, somebody who's been a Christian longer or just has different challenges. That Jesus knows that he can handle the problem and he can handle yours and mine too. And I like the fact that Jesus wants the boy brought to him. Bring the boy to me, he says. Jesus likes problem children. Any of you who've been teachers, as I have, will know that sometimes in a class you may have one or two, or sometimes even more, what they call problem children. Now, you're not allowed to call them that. Don't call them that. But nonetheless, that can be the case. Or even in a family, you know, there's sometimes a bit of a feeling of one child's a bit of the black sheep of the family, or perhaps you even were one of the black sheep of the family. Jesus loves to be with the problem children. Now, let's just take this away from uh, uh, young people to even adults. Some of us can be problem children, even as adults, right? within our own families, within our workplaces, or sometimes even within church. We can be problematic in our groups. Here's the thing. Jesus loves the problem people. And most of us are problem people at some point in our lives. So let's not be judgmental about others who are going through a particular challenge, but let's be patient with each other and understand that Jesus loves to be with that person who's not only going through a problem, but whose behavior is problematic to us. Jesus loves them and wants to be with them just as much as anybody else. Then the man is asked, well, he's really questioned as to his faith, isn't he? Because Jesus wants to know what he wants done. And he says, if anything, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, please. And Jesus says, if you can, everything is possible for one who believes. That must be the core of this story, isn't it? Iffy faith is enough if we stick with Jesus. The if is challenged. If you can, says Jesus, of course Jesus can do this. And he challenges his belief, his level of belief. And the man then, I love this, he opens himself up because he says, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. So the man here is humble. He's owning his unbelief. He's owning the weaknesses of his faith. And this is why, one of the reasons I think at least why Jesus rewards the man, because he's willing to be honest about his struggles with faith. And this is something you and I need to embrace. Uh, none of us here have perfect faith. None of us will ever. But we can bring our damaged or weakened or broken or fractured or incomplete faith to Jesus, to the circumstances in, of life in which we find ourselves, and still find that Jesus is able to work with us and through us, despite our somewhat iffy faith at times. It's a great encouragement to know that we don't have to have perfect faith. We can have iffy faith which, if taken to be with Jesus, will be enough for Jesus to do wonderful things. And after this, the disciples ask him, why couldn't we do it? It's a good question, isn't it? It's understandable, especially given the fact that Jesus had earlier given them, in chapter 6, verse 7, authority over unclean spirits. They were given the authority to deal with this, but for some reason they couldn't. And he says, this kind only comes out by prayer. And one of the things that tells me is that I must be making sure that my problematic areas of my life, the areas where it's, things seem impossible, I cannot see how they can be done, that those are consistently areas of prayer. And I don't know about you, but sometimes even the important things get, get left off my prayer list or they escape my prayer consciousness. And it's really important that you and I make sure that some. And it's one of the reasons why we sometimes let those things fall off is because we're not seeing change. We're not seeing the thing happen that we're praying for. But that's not a reason to stop praying. 
it's in fact an even greater reason to persist in prayer. Jesus says this kind can come out only by prayer. Let's go on to the next passage. Verse 30. Jesus is predicting his death for a second time. They leave that place, go through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know about them being there. He was teaching his disciples. Very important. We need, need to take time away to teach one another about the teachings of Jesus. He said, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They'll kill him. After three days, he will rise. They didn't understand what he meant. Afraid to ask him. I mean, asking someone about death isn't always much fun. They come to Capernaum. While he's in the house, they ask, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? Do you remember they were arguing in the last passage? And now they're arguing with each other. They don't seem to be learning. They keep quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. They do sometimes sound like school children, don't they? Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and we placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's all about relationships in this section, isn't it? This is, first of all, we've got the second prediction of his death, and here he adds the prediction of his betrayal. Uh, the term refers to the action of Judas, but is the same Greek word for God's action in handing Jesus over to suffer on behalf of those to be redeemed, Romans 8, verse 32. His disciples heard what he was saying, but they didn't understand it. And how often that's the same experience we have today when we're trying to teach other people. They may hear what we're saying, but they don't grasp it. It's also a struggle we all have in understanding what God is teaching us in our personal lives sometimes. We don't know what he's up to. And perhaps the thing they didn't fundamentally grasp was this stuff about the resurrection. He will rise. The other elements that he's telling them are unpleasant but comprehensible. So it may have been the rising after three days that they, they couldn't grasp. Now, why were they afraid to ask him about all this? Were they afraid of a rebuke? Uh, were they afraid of looking stupid? Or of what the fuller meaning of what it meant for Jesus, that, that, that what the fuller meaning might be, and how that might impact their dreams, even their own lives? They, they probably had plans for their future that didn't include dying, and especially not following a dying Messiah. So they go into the house, and we had the beginning of what's called an inclusio, uh, which concludes in verse 50. So that's uh, a, a sort of a, a beginning and an end of a section. Interesting. Which means that all the material in between is to be understood as giving teaching on life together, like I said about relationships. And after each of the predictions of the cross, Jesus makes a correction to the disciples' understanding of discipleship. And we also, when we teach the cross, must be sure to clearly talk about the implications of discipleship. The cross, shorn of its context of commitment to being a disciple of Christ, is making the cross otherwise an empty symbol. And he goes on to talk about servanthood. You must be the very last, the servant of all. Now the word servant and the word child can mean the same thing in Greek and in Aramaic. So Jesus is not dealing so much here with position, I would say, but more with, more with desire. It must be the desire of a follower of Jesus to be a servant, not just to have a role. What we want is the question, do I want to be a servant or do I want to be loved, liked, recognized, honored, respected, that kind of thing. 
And he takes that little child, the children being at the bottom of the pecking order in the house, and where the child stands makes the disciples look at that child. This child must have been very secure for Jesus in order to do this. Jesus sees the importance of what otherwise might be viewed as unimportant. Whoever welcomes one of these little children. And the point here isn't so much about children specifically, but about how we should treat one another. One does not think in terms of whether one is greater than a child. The call is to welcome the little children of God, the disciples, with open arms and to make them feel welcomed and loved. And when we're concerned about whether we are above or below others, we are incapable of truly loving them. And this is the glory of the Incarnation. Jesus was the Lord of heaven, yet inhabited our flesh and treated us as equals. So we must do no less for one another and anybody that God brings into our lives. Now, we go on to the next section, verse 38. They see someone driving out demons and they tell him to stop because he's not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus says, for a miracle is a good thing in my name. I tell you, whoever gives a cup of water in my name because of because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Let's stop there for a moment. How many times does John in particular speak up? Does this comment indicate that he had a negatively judgmental attitude in general? The contrast with 1st, 2nd and 3rd John is very interesting, those epistles, although he's equally strong there about false brothers, but from a different angle. Have a look at Mark 10 verse 35 too, if you want to dig a bit more into this. So the question really being asked and answered here is, who are the children that we should welcome? Remember, we've just been talking about those little children. That's the question from this that earlier part. And the link between the two is, in my name. We get that both in that earlier chapter, uh, section of the chapter and this part. Jesus says, don't, don't stop them. Don't stop them. Now, who does this apply to? And who can it not apply to? Well, in Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 20, a similar looking situation ends uh, quite differently. And you might like to look that up. There it seems that the people practicing the exorcisms are performing them magically, I suppose would be the way to put it, trying to invoke the power of the Christ in his name, but without true deference to his identity. They are magicians, not disciples in, in any sense. Here in Mark 9, the implication is that these people are disciples or proto-disciples and they are in submission to all that they understand it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And as such, it is incumbent upon other disciples to welcome these people, even if they may not have a full understanding of discipleship, they are to be given the benefit of the doubt. Anyone who gives a cup of water in my name, he says, they'll get a reward. Now, Jesus uses the, uh, the Christ word here, Messiah, he uses it. Is this because the the secret is out now, at least among his followers? They may not have understood it fully yet, but they do know who he is. And what kind of reward might Jesus be talking about? The disciples don't yet know their reward, do they? What might they have understood to be their reward, as Jesus mentions it here? Perhaps sitting, judging the tribes of Israel, feasting at the banquet of the Messiah, joining the victory parade as the Romans are finally expelled from Israel, possibly. I wonder what you think. Think about that. Have a discussion in your groups about what that reward might have meant to them. And now we move on to the final section from verse 42. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better 
or have a large millstone hung around the neck thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. If it's better, it is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. The same thing. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. The same thing. The worm they eat does not die. The fire not quenched in hell. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. Well, just a few brief thoughts about this. Here we have the hand that grasps for that which it should not, the foot that causes us to go where we should not, and the eye that causes us to look at what we should not. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it wouldn't be good. These little ones are not the children mentioned earlier, but the people who believe in Jesus and follow him. These may be in Jesus' immediate retinue, or they may not. The passage moves from being careful not to cause others to literally fall, to making sure we are vigilant regarding our own sins. Salted with fire. There is a final fire in verse 48 of judgment, but there's also a fire of trials in the Christian life, isn't there? And those purify our faith. Have a look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13. All disciples will be salted with that fire, but hopefully will avoid the salt of the fire of hell. But the, the fire of the salting of refining in this life is something you and I cannot avoid, and in fact must not, because it does refine our faith and strengthen us. Of course, Old Testament sacrifices were salted, Leviticus 2, verse 13, and perhaps that illusion points to the fact that we are living, we are living sacrifices and are salted with trials, just like the dead sacrifices were salted with salt in the Old Testament. That Old Testament saltiness was temporary. Ours is ongoing as we get through life. He finally says, have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. And this marks the end of the section dealing with the disciples arguing about who it was the greatest. And if we understand the way that God refines us through a salty fire, we will be humble about our own condition that needs such refining and will not look down on others going through similar times of refining. And that humility will enable us to get on with one another in peace. While I'm being salted with refining, please be patient with me. While you're being salted with your refining and finding things difficult, may I be patient with you. And let us love one another as we assist and strengthen each other, as we allow God to refine us, as we experience that salting with this kind of fire, and prayerfully come out stronger the other side, so that we can then be stronger to be able to bless others as they go through their own salting. Are you being salted with fire right now? Maybe you are. Whether it's in your health, in your job situation, in your marriage, in your family, with your children, with your parents, with mental and emotional struggles, or whatever it is, if you're being salted with fire, don't push other people away. And if you have people in your local group who are being salted with fire and are struggling, maybe they're really struggling, don't be down on them. Be alongside them to support them, because if you're not going through it right now, you will be in a little while, and you will need others to be patient with you. So a few thoughts from this chapter just to wrap up and then have some discussion in your local group. 
Firstly, how does the portrayal of Jesus on the mountain, remember back at the beginning of the chapter, how does the portrayal of Jesus on that mountain shape your view of him? How does that make you think of him? Secondly, why do you think Jesus connects his death with the commitment to be like little children? And thirdly, how can, what can help you endure the salting that inevitably comes your way and mine? Well, I hope you find that useful and helpful. Do let me know. You can email me any thoughts or questions or suggestions. Uh, send it to malcolm at malcolmcox.org. I look forward to hearing from you. And I pray that between now and the next time, you will find that the salting that comes, if it's coming to you right now, that that salting is the kind of salting that increases your faith, that grows your faith. And you come to experience and know that even if your faith is a bit iffy, as long as you are there with Jesus, it will be enough for God to work powerfully in your life. Till the next time, take care and God bless.